Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Episode 7, The Battle at St. Charles. It was probably the intercepted letter that gave the Patriot at St. Charles a false sense of security. After the victory over British forces at the nearby village of Saint-Denis, local Patriot must have been elated. It looked like they just might be able to do this, to win their independence. And the intercepted letter could only have made them feel better. It was from General Colborn, commander of British forces, and had been sent to Lieutenant Colonel Wetherall. Colborn ordered Wetherall and his troops back to Montreal in the wake of Gore's defeat at Saint-Denis. The sense of relief in St. Charles must have been palpable. The Patriot had built barricades around the seigneurial manor in St. Charles. They were expecting an attack from the south. The men at their pickets could now relax. And then they saw it, smoke rising in the south from the direction they expected an attack to come. Thomas Storrow Brown, a man who maybe couldn't spell the word delegate, was actually back in the village arranging the baking of bread. You know, as you do when you're a general. Then it came. A large crack and a whoosh of air. A streak flashed through the sky and crashed into the church tower. That could mean only one thing. Artillery. The Patriot might not have been expecting it, but the battle for St. Charles had begun. In last week's episode, the sparks of rebellion ignited into open fire in Lower Canada. The Patriot leaders fled Montreal just ahead of warrants ordering their arrest. And when bailiffs went searching for suspects outside Montreal, Patriot supporters ambushed the troops and recaptured the arrested Patriot leaders. General Colborn sent forth two separate forces to attack the Patriot strongholds in the Richelieu Valley one from the north and one from the south. But the British regulars who ascended the muddy paths towards Saint-Denis found an unpleasant welcome when they reached the village. Local Patriot supporters steadfastly defended the town and repulsed the British troops. It was a stunning victory for the insurgent rebels, giving them hope that maybe they really could defeat the world's greatest military power. But those weren't the only British troops in the region. Another force, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Wetherall, had stalled its advance to rest and replenish itself on the generous supplies of bread and wine provided by militia friends. They were only 10 kilometers away from the largest Patriot camp at St. Charles. When we left last day, Wetherall had just decided, even though he knew of the Patriot victory over his fellow troops at Saint-Denis, he wasn't going to retreat. And so, with only his instincts to rely on, Wetherall ordered the British regulars under his command to ready themselves for action, and off they marched to meet the insurgents head-on. In the village of St. Charles, Thomas Brown and the Patria may have been initially surprised by the cannon fire assaulting their church, but they had been preparing for just such an attack. Local supporters had been streaming in and sometimes out of the village. On some days, there may have been as many as two and a half thousand volunteers in the village, but on other days, the numbers dwindled. This wasn't a regular military with the discipline and regularity that implied. The habitants came and went from the encampment, depending on their daily schedules, their hopes, 
and, of course, their fears. Many had traveled downriver to help fight at Saint-Denis. Indeed, it was the help of all these reinforcements that probably turned the tide of that battle. At Saint-Charles, the Patriot had built their fortified base in the large brick manor of Pierre-Dominique Desbarches, the former Patriot-supporting seigneur who had turned back when it looked like rebellion was imminent. The Debarge Manor lay along the southern route into the village. It had a stout main building, though it was made of brick and not the more impregnable stone as had been the main Patriot base in Saint-Denis. All around the manor, the Patriot had been busy fashioning barricades of logs and earth. Behind the barricades, the Patriot could take up defensive positions and fire upon the oncoming troops. Further up the river, other groups of men built pickets in buildings and in woods, and then across the river to harass the troops as they made their way down river toward the village. The Patriot had also destroyed the small bridges covering streams upriver to make the passage more difficult. Yet in the relaxed atmosphere, assuming that the attack wasn't coming that day, the Patriot had been caught by surprise and the sentries only spotted the British forces about a mile from the village. The men in the pickets fired on the troops and then retreated back to camp. Across the river, other Patriot sentries also fired on Wetherall's troops as they approached St. Charles. These early attacks forced Wetherall to divert his troops away from the river, further to the east and out of range of these shooters. Although this was inconvenient for the British regulars, it actually worked to their advantage. The Patriot had established a cannon in position to fire at any troops approaching St. Charles via the main road, but the gun could not be easily moved to redirect its fire against where the British troops now were, and so the locals lost a key weapon. At the sight of the British regulars marching through the fields, many in the town seemed to panic. Wetherall's artillerymen shouted orders for the placement of their guns, and the regulars took up positions all along the fences that had been put up to stop their advance. As the reality of what was happening set in, many in the village fled. The Patriot's ostensible general, Thomas Brown, rushed from place to place, trying to keep everyone calm and prevent desertion. The sight of your comrades fleeing for safety was not the thing to inspire confidence. He ordered some men back to the other side of the village to prevent this from happening. It also meant that just as the battle began, the Patriot General was focused on preventing his supporters from fleeing and not on how best to face the army currently assaulting his position. In all, the leaders didn't show too well in this encounter. Another prominent Patriot claimed to be worried about a repeat of something like the killing of Lieutenant Ware, the British prisoner killed at Saint-Denis. So he unilaterally put himself in charge of arranging safe passage of the prisoners, and himself of course, out of harm's way. When you add these departures to the fact that other Patriot leaders were off in the United States trying to purchase arms, this meant that the fighting at St. Charles was largely left up to the habitants from the village and surrounding areas. The Patriot representatives in the assembly might have spoken eloquent words, but when the bullets started flying, in St. Charles at least, it was the habitants who stood their ground and took the brunt of the British assault. Before commencing his attack, 
Wetherill sent a message into the village with a request to parley. Perhaps they ought to talk before things went too far. But when the messenger reached Brown, the Patriot General either misunderstood the message or it wasn't delivered clearly. Because, as Brown later claimed to have understood it, Wetherall was requesting permission to march his troops through the area on their way back to Montreal in retreat, just as the original orders from Colborne had instructed. The British were simply asking for safe passage. Brown sent a message back saying that if the troops laid down their arms, he would ensure that they could march through the town and head back to Montreal. But war's a messy business, and Brown's messenger never even took the message back to Wetherill. It's hard to know how significant this bit of misinformation in the fog of war actually was, but it does show that Brown, even this late, thought that it might not come to a full-blown battle. When Wetherill never received reply to his request for parley, he ordered the attack. His troops advanced to a stop about 100 yards away from the Patriot earthworks. The two sides commenced firing each other, initially to little effect. Wetherill soon realized that the design of the Patriot barricades meant that the villagers were firing mostly above the heads of the British troops, so he ordered the troops to keep themselves low to the ground. More effective from the Patriot perspective were the sharpshooters who had taken up positions in a wood on the other side of the troops. The British troops were exposed to these shooters. The Patriot even managed to shoot Wetherall's horse out from under him. Meanwhile, the British artillery strafed the barricades in the brick manor behind. For two hours, the two sides faced off in this way, doing little damage to show for it, neither side gaining the advantage. Finally, Wetherall decided to use the one advantage he had, the fact that he had at his disposal trained troops armed with bayonets. They faced local farmers who had no experience facing a direct charge and the possibility of close hand-to-hand -hand combat and who, notably, weren't armed with bayonets. This was the option that Gore had considered at Saint-Denis, but in that case his men had been exhausted after an overnight march in the sodden rain and mud. At Saint-Charles, the British regulars were well rested, fed and ready to fight. When ordered, the British troops charged several oak buildings, flanking the barricades, and then launched themselves directly up and over the barricades themselves. Unfortunately for the Patriot, they had built the barricades incorrectly. When they dug out the earth for the pit, they piled it up in front of the logs, inadvertently building a handy ramp for attacking troops to run up and easily surmount the barricade. Well, I say easily. There's nothing easy about running directly at a barricade in the midst of screams and musket fire and smoke with death and horrible wounds awaiting you at any moment, but you know what I mean. At any rate, the charge worked. Although other Patriot and outbuildings kept up their fire, once the British troops were over the barricades, the battle was essentially done. Except it was nowhere near done when it came to the unpleasant business of dying. By this point, many Patriot supporters had fled St. Charles, but a large group had held out to the end. Now, the accounts of what happened next vary. If you believe the British side, the Patriot sat down as if in a pose of surrender, but then, 
when the troops approached, the defenders reached for their weapons to fire upon the attackers. That's version one. If you believe the patriotic accounts, the villagers tried to surrender only to have the soldiers ignore their pleas and slaughter them on the spot. This last bit, the killing, was certainly correct. The regular troops took only a few prisoners that day and very few injured Patriot survived. Within a short time after the bayonet charge, the British regulars had routed their foes. Many Patriots had died on the ground that day or burned when the oak buildings were put to the flame. Others fled the village, taking the dire news of defeat along with them. Now in control of the village, Wetherall and the troops occupied the Debarch Manor themselves and, like the Patriot before them, availed themselves of the food and beverages available. War is a hungry business, after all. Still, as night descended, it was a grisly time. The force's two doctors tended to the wounded. The dead were piled up to await burial. Many Patriot were interred in a mass grave because the local priest refused to bury the rebels in consecrated ground. The church really was not going to support this rebellion thing. What prisoners there were spent the night kneeling in fear in the local church, awaiting their fate. In the morning, the regulars found the grisly sight of several pigs feasting on the remains of the dead. They shot the animals on the spot. Meanwhile, the Patriot leaders were still free. Thomas Brown actually hadn't abandoned his troops, despite the fact that many thought he had done so. He'd been at the far end of the village trying to prevent his erstwhile habitant supporters from fleeing. When the final British charge had come, Brown had tried to gather small groups of men to stay with him and hold up a defense in the rear. But the men ran off as quickly as they came. They showed him weapons that wouldn't fire. Looking terrified, they fled into the fields and forest. Soon, Brown fled too, heading downriver to Saint-Denis. Refugees had been coming to that village all day from the battle. But when Brown arrived, he had to face the wrath of Wolfred Nelson, who wasn't pleased to hear news of the defeat at St. Charles. Nelson took it upon himself to demote Brown from his position as Patriot General. Then, they did what they could do to organize a resistance. They assumed that Wetherall and his troops would soon be upon them, and they needed to prepare a defense for Saint-Denis. Wetherall, though, was both too clever and too cautious for that. After the victory at St. Charles, Wetherall decided to try some psychological warfare to soften up his foes. He spoke to the local priest who agreed to go downriver to Saint-Denis with a message. Now the church was decidedly cool to the rebellion, of course, and this priest wasn't an exception. The priest told the habitants that if they put down their weapons and handed over their leaders, like Brown and Nelson, the British troops would let the rest go unscathed. Amidst the frightening prospect of another battle and the recent defeat, many must have appreciated the message. When Brown and Nelson woke the next morning, they found that almost all of their supporters had fled. There was nothing left to defend. Back in St. Charles, though, Wetherall could not be sure his plan would work, and scouts brought news of another Patriot force to the south gathering to strike. Wetherall waited for a message from General Colborne to give him further orders, but nothing came. With no orders, having achieved a bit of a success, and still worried about the safety of his position, Wetherall decided to march his force out of the village, not down to Saint-Denis, but instead back the way he had come. Blocking his way home, though, 
was another Patriot force of about 300 men. They planned to ambush Wetherall's troops on their way back. They did, that is, until a messenger came into the camp who claimed to have news from Louis-Joseph Papineau. The Patriot leader had been a mysterious and largely absent figure through all of the fighting. Urged to avoid battle so as to preserve his status as political leader, it's unclear exactly where Papineau was through the Battle of St. Charles. But this messenger claimed to have orders from Papineau telling the Patriot to fall back and wait for the delivery of a supply of arms from the United States. Some in the camp agreed, but others weren't so sure. They saw a chance to take Wetherell's force by surprise. In the end, Wetherell's forces spotted the Patriot on a hill. The two sides fired sporadic shots at each other. Two Patriot were killed before the whole Patriot force retreated. Wetherall and the victors of St. Charles kept on their way, safely retreating back to the fort. They had not destroyed their opposition, but they did win a victory and had managed to sow doubt and discord in the Patriot ranks. Wetherall and his troops then headed back to Montreal, arriving on 30th of November, just over a week after the whole adventure had begun. Gore and his defeated but now arrested troops had already been back for several days. Colborne had received no news from Wetherall and could only assume the worst. So when the troops arrived back with the tale of their victory at St. Charles, they were greeted with heroic cheers. As soon as Wetherall was back, Colborne opted to send the previously unsuccessful Lieutenant Gore back to the Richelieu Valley. Wetherall may have won a victory at St. Charles, but there were still plenty of Patriot supporters in the region, and none of the leaders had yet been captured. Reports came in that Wolfred Nelson, the general who had repulsed Gore at Saint-Denis, was still in the region and drumming up support. And then there was the matter of the general convention. That was the meeting called weeks earlier by Papineau and the other Patriot leaders to be held on December 4th at St. Charles. Would it still go ahead? And what would happen if it did? So Gore sat back out again, up the St. Lawrence to Sorel, and then upriver again to Saint-Denis, retracing his steps, though this time taking the road and not the backwoods path. This time he had slightly more troops under his command, and certainly he had a little bit of experience about what to expect. They hoped that the Richelieu would now have been subdued, but they couldn't be sure. Gore and his troops arrived in Saint-Denis on December 2nd, 10 days after his previous visit. He found the town quiet and wary. The troops immediately set to work to prevent a further insurrection, this time by using fire. They set ablaze all of the buildings from which the Patriot had fired on British troops the previous week. But they didn't stop there. The leaders of the Patriot also received special attention, and their homes, too, were set to the torch. The initial burnings were carried out with military discipline, but it seems that it didn't continue that way. The next day, the troops discovered the body of poor George Weir, that messenger who, in trying to catch up to Gore's forces, had arrived ahead of them into the Patriot camp. When the troops found his bloated and disfigured body under some rocks in a nearby stream, it seems they took out their revenge on other homes in the village too. Certainly they burned the home of one of the locals who they thought had been responsible for the killing. From Saint-Denis, Gore's forces headed upriver to St. Charles, arriving on December 4th, the day of the planned convention. 
but all was silent in St. Charles. In fact, the Patriot leaders had been in the region, but had by this time fled to the American border. So Gore's troops continued upriver, doing a circuit, visiting other former places of Patriot support, before arriving back in Montreal several days later. In Montreal, Colborne was worried about whether he had sufficient forces in the colony to put down the insurrection. And so he turned for help to local volunteers. It was a risky strategy. Gosford had previously turned down the requests of those in the English community to organize militarily. The last thing the government wanted was to make the battle even more a fight between ethnic communities and different factions. The regular troops though insufficient in number, at least had the status as officially representing the government and had some training. Colborne actually hoped that he could draw upon the militia of Upper Canada. Governor Bond Head had already sent all of those regular troops from the colony east to assist Colborne. All through late November, Colborne sent requests begging for several units of Upper Canadian militia. At least they would be outsiders in the colony. But although Head had rashly decided to send the regulars, he claimed that he just couldn't spare his loyal militia. The situation in Upper Canada was just too delicate. The departure of militia units could set things off. So Colborne ultimately gave in and turned to locals in Lower Canada. He had already allowed for the organization of local defense forces, but he ultimately opted to create a loyalist militia force of about 4,000 strong who could operate alongside the British regulars. And he soon had reason to believe that militia units could be extremely valuable. In early December, Colborne had ordered the dispatch of arms to various parts of the colony to supply local militias who, he hoped, could be counted upon to defend the constitutional order. One of these orders arrived in the eastern townships only just in time. We haven't talked too much about this region of Lower Canada. The eastern townships were that section of land mostly south and east of Montreal. They had not been significantly settled by French Canadians before the conquest, and in the early 19th century, they attracted new English-speaking settlers, Scots and Irish and a large contingent of Americans. And yet Colborne could not be entirely certain of their loyalties. Certainly, many leaders from this area had been allied with the Patriot in their calls for political and democratic reform. But the question was, how far would they go with this alliance now that it had come to rebellion? In early December, a small group of Patriot headed south to the Vermont border to bring back a cache of arms and ammunition. But they were anything but secret. Stopping in a town in the village of Phillipsburg, just north of the American border in the eastern townships. They boasted of their exploits and their intentions. Local loyalists were listening though. As soon as the Patriot left, the loyalists sent calls out to neighboring areas, calling for volunteers. By that night, 300 men arrived and were promptly armed with weapons. Then they proceeded to a spot just north of the border at a crossing called Moore's Corner. They set themselves up in a defensive spot with a good view from the top of a hill and waited. They didn't wait long. A short while later, they spotted the group of 12 Patriot returning up the road with their cannon and store of weapons. The volunteers immediately fired upon the vastly outnumbered Patriot 
the two sides exchanged fire for about 20 minutes, but there was little hope for the Patriot. From their better vantage, the local loyalist volunteers killed one Patriot and wounded several others. The rest were forced to abandon their cash and retreat back across the border, content to escape with their lives. Only a few miles away, another group of Patriot leaders, fleeing the defeat at St. Charles, were lost and struggling to find the American border. The group included future father of Confederation Georges Etienne Cartier, as well as Bonaventure Viget, the hero of the raid at Langay, who had recaptured the arrested Patriot leaders. They heard the shooting in the distance and huddled in hiding. Then their local guide took off, fleeing from the possible danger. So close to the border, but unsure where to go, the group actually retreated, but they were soon captured and taken back to Montreal as prisoners. The group of local loyalists, calling themselves the Missisquoi Volunteers, after the lake in the area, sent back word of their exploits to Colborne in Montreal. The commander actually apologized. He worried that Colborne might not have appreciated the fact that his volunteers had started firing so quickly, and he apologized for his troops' lack of discipline. But he needn't have been bothered. Colborne was delighted with the news. Not only had the Missisquoi Volunteers prevented a shipment of arms from coming to the aid of the Patriot, but they also showed just how useful the volunteer troops could be. This news meant that he could be freed up from worrying about the border region and could now turn his attention to the other main stronghold of Patriot activity in the colony, the area around the Lake of Two Mountains. This was an area of mixed French and English settlement, and it had seen the most numerous reports of political charivaries over the summer. By the end of the summer, the government had effectively lost control over the region, at least if you interpret this to mean the ability to arrest someone who had broken the law. But by early December, the situation had changed. With the colony now in open conflict, Governor Gosford conceded to the requests of Colborne and local loyal magistrates to impose martial law in the Montreal district. To Gosford, with his Irish background and his sense of how this law was used in Ireland, this had been a last resort, but resort to it he did. Now, with the legal backing of martial law, with the Richelieu Valley subdued and the good news from the Missisquoi volunteers, Colborne readied the largest military force so far and personally took command. He was headed to the Lake of Two Mountains area to end this thing once and for all. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe if you haven't already. And please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we leave Lower Canada behind for the moment and turn to Upper Canada. News of rebellion had traveled to the Upper Province, spreading, depending on the audience, both hope and alarm. The reformer, William Lyme Mackenzie, was ready. He had been waiting for just such a moment, hoping he could use events in the Lower Colony to steer his allies off the path of peaceful reform and nudge them onto the road of open rebellion. As usual, 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dunnett. But there is news on the production side. 
I want to thank Jessica Clement for her incredible work trying to make an academic like me sound not overly horrible in the first few episodes. And I want to welcome the show's new producer, Matthew Hayes, a historian in his own right, and also a technical whiz. Welcome aboard, Matt. Thanks to Trent Online at Trent University for their generous support. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>